Let's not point fingers and shout at each other. Let's work together and say, okay, what are we going to do? How do we get this stuff underway? Because it's all there. There's no new invention needed to go green. We just need to get over the fears, the fears that it'll break the economy, the fears it's going to be too expensive, the fears that politicians will lose votes, the fears that industry will be put out of business. Let's get over the fear and just move ahead with it and evolve our technology. I really believe we can do that. We've been to the moon and back, for God's sakes. Let's evolve our technology and prevent another mass extinction event, which would be us. I'm Peter McCulley. That's Bob McDonald, author and science journalist. We'll talk about his new book, The Future Is Now, Solving the Climate Crisis with Today's Technologies, when Today in BC continues. Searching for a new home? Make todayshomebc.com your online home base. With easy-to-search listings and connections to local realtors, everything you need is under one roof. Powered by Black Press Media, you can search hundreds of local listings all in one place. Access the top real estate professionals to help you find the perfect home today at todayshomebc.com. Thanks for joining us today, Bob. Happy to be here, Peter. I'm reasonably sure that Every one of our listeners knows somebody in British Columbia named Bob McDonald, but there'd only be one <laughs> who's working as a science journalist and an author for more than 30 years, most notably as the host of Quirks and Quarks. So I'm interested in where your love of science began. Well, actually, it began when I was a kid because I grew up in the space age. The entire space program has happened within my lifetime. I remember Sputnik, the very first satellite that the Russians put up in 1957. I was around then. I was a kid, but I remember it seeing this drawing on the newspaper in Orillia, where I lived in Ontario, and it showed the earth with a circle around it, a little ball. And everybody was going, ooh, this is really exciting. They were also scared because those evil Russians, if they can put a ball that goes right over our head, maybe they could put a nuclear weapon up there. It was a really interesting time. And then I watched all of the space program. I knew the names of all the early astronauts. I watched them walk on the moon. I watched all the moon missions, not just the first one. It just evolved from there. So my interest in science has been around ever since I was a little kid, and I've been very fortunate to become a journalist and continue that exploration for real as we explore the solar system. I have to say that was my time too. I think I was 11 or 12 when they landed on the moon. I don't think I missed a Gemini or an Apollo launch. <laughs> I had that come full circle. In the 2000s, I was part of a, a conference on going back to the moon in Toronto when I was living there. And the guest of honor was Buzz Aldrin, who was on Apollo 11, the first landing. They put me beside him at dinner and I just threw it out. I said, hey, Buzz, I've got a sailboat here in Toronto Harbor. Would you like to go sailing tomorrow? And he said, sure. <laughs> so I took Buzz Aldrin sailing. So it was amazing to watch him walk on the moon as a kid and then take him out for a sail in Toronto Harbor. It was great. Did you get him to navigate? It was funny because it was quite a windy day. There was a lot of chop out on the lake. And the very first thing that Buzz did was he went up on deck. He didn't get into the cockpit. He went up on deck and held on to the rigging of the boat. And the boat was pitching up and down. Well, I said to somebody who was back with me in the cockpit, I said, do you think he's okay up there? Because he was in his 80s. And the guy said, look, that fella sat on the tip of a Saturn V rocket and blasted himself off to the moon. He can stand in your bloody deck. <laughs> and he did. He was fine. <laughs> Would it be fair to say that the start of your career as a science journalist began in the 70s when you returned from California where you watched the launch of Voyager 2? Yes, it was during the 70s. I was involved at the Ontario Science Centre in Toronto. I was an instructor there. 
And NASA started sending these robots to the planets. And in 1976, there was a robot called Viking that landed on Mars. And it was the first big lander to go there with color cameras. I was following that. And CBC News called up and they said, can somebody come on and talk about this thing that landed on Mars? I said, yeah, I could do that. I'd never been on television before. But I went down and I had some photographs. I had a globe of Mars. I said, here's what it landed. Here's what it saw. It's really exciting. This is really neat. And they said, well, thank you very much, Mr. McDonald. Then they broke for commercial. And as I was getting off the set, taking off the microphone, the director came down from the news control room, stood right in front of me with her hand on her hips, and she pointed at me. She said, you're really good on camera. If you want to come back and do more science stuff, we'll have you here. And then I was on CTV the next minute, then Global, and I just started appearing on all these programs, and people liked what I did, and they said, do you want to come back? And I did, and that's the story of my life. That was also 45 years ago, which is hard to believe. Are you still mm-hmm. following Voyager? Because it's still out there. Oh, yes. I followed Voyager. I was at the launch of Voyager in 1977, along with Carl Sagan and the group that put the golden record on it, which is a message to aliens in case anybody finds it, because it's heading out to the stars. I was there when it went by Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Over the next 12 years, I kept making regular pilgrimages to the Jet Propulsion Lab in California, where they control them, where the pictures come in. So I was there when humanity was discovering the planets for the first time. We were seeing them in close-up detail. And it was just like being on Columbus's ship or something. The lookout says, land ho! And everybody runs to the railing, and here's these weird worlds, not just the planets, but their moons. We saw moons made of ice, moons with volcanoes, weird shaped things all the way out. So it was really exciting. And even in 2015, when we went to Pluto, and Pluto wasn't even a planet by then, I went there to see that. So I've had this virtual discovery of the solar system and Voyager is still going. Now it's in interstellar space. And I interviewed Ed Stone, who was the project scientist for that just a couple of years ago, and he's still active. He's now in his 80s as well, but still following it. And that thing is going to last billions of years. We have never built anything that will last billions of years. The pyramids are only 5,000 years old, and the oldest stone tools we have are 2 million years old. These voyagers are going to be out there for billions of years. They'll cross our galaxy. So it was neat. They've probably got another 5 or 10 years in them. You've received numerous honorary doctorates for your work and membership in the Order of Canada, and now you're in your 70s. And it sounds mm-hmm. like you're just getting started. I'm talking to you. You're on a book tour, and you've just <laughs> celebrated Quirks and Quarks anniversary. Yeah, I'm peaking right now, Peter. It's pretty amazing. We just celebrated my 30th anniversary as host of Quirks. I can't believe it's been that long. And scientists sent in some really wonderful messages to the public about how much they enjoy my work. And yes, I've been honored by 12 universities across the country. The Order of Canada is humbling. I had an asteroid named after me, and it's just humbling that people appreciate what I do. I'm going to turn 72 in January, (laughs) but I'm still at it. As long as they'll let me do it, I'll keep doing it because it's endlessly entertaining. Science is so amazing, and I'm fortunate to talk to the people who are on the cutting edge of our knowledge finding out not just about the universe, but about molecules and atoms and insect life and how the earth works, how the universe is put together. And there's so much we don't know. So every week when we put quirks together, I'm talking to people who are telling me their stories, amazing stories. Before we talk about the book, since we're talking about the 30th anniversary of Quirks and Quarks, I'm sure you have some highlights to share. Every week is like a highlight because I never know what's going to happen. I have to say that every time the Nobel Prizes are given out, I get to talk to them. And that's pretty cool. 
it's always a happy interview because the person's surprised. They weren't expecting to get it. They're happy and they did really important work. So that's always a highlight for me every year when the Nobels come out. Or if it's a world famous scientist, some a big name. I've had the pleasure of interviewing the late Carl Sagan a few times. And what I find about the more senior scientists and, and even the Nobel winners, they like to talk about what they don't know. They've talked about what they do know forever. Everybody wants to ask them, what did you discover and all that? And that was like for them years ago. They're more interested in what their graduate students are doing, what's on the front line. They like to look ahead, and I really like that. Have there been any younger generation Nobel winners? The Nobels are designed to reward work that leads to something else that's pivotal. It's usually given to people later on in their careers because they have to see that, for example, Art McDonald, who is a Canadian Nobel laureate, he worked on the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory. Neutrinos come from the sun. They're sort of answering that fundamental question, how does the sun work? And they worked for decades underground in Sudbury with this unique observatory trying to figure out the nature of neutrinos, and they did. So he just got the Nobel Prize a few years ago, but he's been working on that for a very long time. So the Nobel winners tend to be a little bit older, not always, but a little bit older because of the way the Nobel Prizes are designed. I do interview young scientists, and what's happening to me now (laughs) makes me feel old, but I'll do an interview with the scientists, and at the end of it, they'll say, oh, by the way, I used to watch you when I was a kid. You got me interested in science, and it's so heartwarming that when that happens. I'm delighted when that happens. Yeah, I've been around a while, too. I'm still not comfortable with it. For instance, chatting <laughs> with Terry Fox's brother a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. and I saw Terry on his initial run across Canada, which is a while ago. Yep. I had a fellow come up to me. He was pushing a stroller, and I was just walking through a park, and he came right up to me. And he said, Mr. McDonald, I watched you when I was a kid. You had a kid show called Wonderstruck. It was a science show on uh, television. He said, I watched that. You got me interested in science, and now I'm a dentist. And uh, thank you for that. And then he walked away, and it was like, holy smokes. Because we just throw these programs out to the air. You don't know who's listening. You don't know what effect it's having. When you do get feedback like that, it makes you feel, maybe we're doing something right here in this business. Let's talk about the book, The Future is Now. I read several reviews on the book, and I agree with them. They described the book as being optimistic and positive in regards to our abilities and our chances to find some clean energy alternatives and climate change solutions. There's a lot of facts in the book, and I was really taken aback by the amount of oil that we consume on planet Earth. Maybe you could run through the numbers for us. Yeah, it's scary. We did a calculation on how much work a barrel of oil can do. And there's a unit called a joule. If you pick up a bag of rice that weighs one kilo, hold it out at waist level and lift it over your head, you've done one joule of work, one kilo raised one meter. Well, a barrel of oil, the standard 45-gallon drum, contains six billion joules, which is hard to get your head around. So another unit is the Great Pyramids of Egypt. Somebody figured out how many jewels it took to build the pyramids, and it's in the trillions of jewels. But when you translate that into barrels of oil, it's only 400 barrels, which is what you can get out of one oil well in one day to build the pyramids. So when you add up all the energy that we're using around the world every year, all the forms of energy that we use, we burn about 2 million pyramids every year. 2 million pyramids. It took the ancient Egyptians 20 years to do it once. We do 2 million of them every year. So we're awash in this energy. And that's because oil is so dense. Oil, coal, natural gas, we just dig them out of the ground, 
and burn them. And they're not the problem. It's the way we burn them. We just light a match, which has been great for the last 150 years. It got us through the Industrial Revolution. But when you just burn these fossil fuels, they're called hydrocarbons because it's a, a chain of carbon atoms with hydrogen stuck to it like Christmas bulbs on a string. And in the same way that when you plug in the lights, it's the bulbs that light up. The string just sits there. So when you burn fossil fuels, the hydrogen is what's coming off and giving you all that energy. The carbon stays behind. And so it'll either just go up by itself, black carbon, that's smoke, soot, or it'll combine with oxygen in the air. Then you get carbon dioxide or carbon monoxide. Or if there's sulfur in there, it's sulfur dioxide. It's the leftovers that are changing the climate. We could get just the hydrogen out of the oil, leave the carbon behind, store it underground, or find some other way to get the energy out of oil without all of those things. So that's what I've done in my book is to say, not make enemies out of the fossil fuel industry, not to say we have to get rid of it, we just have to utilize it differently, because it's very convenient. But it's going to be joined by many other forms of energy as well. At the rate that we're currently burning oil, <laughs> how many years do we estimate we have left? We used to worry about that back in the 70s. They talked about peak oil, and that didn't happen because there's so much more effort now to go after it. So it's not about running out of oil. There's a wonderful phrase... The Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stone. We moved in a different direction. We went to the Iron Age and then the Bronze Age and then steel and now we're in the Electronic Age. So the technology evolved. The technology got better. Okay, the way we've been burning oil has been great. We have the combustion era. So let's get out of that now and get into electrification or hydrogen or whatever. We can't think of fossil fuels as the only source of energy. There's more energy falling out of the sky in one hour than we use in a year, hitting the earth, the sunlight. More energy blows on the wind, it, it bubbles out of the ground, it literally grows on trees. So there's no shortage of energy, it's just how we scoop it up. And we've been spoiled because oil and fossil fuels are so energy dense that you can carry them around in tanks, you can put them in coal bunkers, you can use them when you want, you can store them, and they give you a lot of bang for the buck. The other form of energy, solar, wind, geothermal, they're spread out. So you need large technology to gather it. So we need large windmills, we need large solar farms, but it's there. The beauty of the alternatives is that if you do something like set up a solar farm or put them on the roof of your home, they just sit there absorbing free energy. You don't have to keep digging them out of the ground and using them once and throwing them away. They're there. So your upfront cost, it might cost something to get them installed, but after that, it's free. When you're thinking about alternatives, you want to put solar panels on your roof, don't just look at the upfront cost. Look at when you get that cost back in savings over the long period. And that's what we need is long-term thinking. So energy in the future is going to come from a lot of different sources. It's going to come from the sun, the wind, the tides, the earth, waves, whatever, your own home. And, and that's the future. It's, it's going to be multiple, and fossil fuels will be part of that. I like the way the book is laid out. The chapters go through the different types of energy that are available to us. And how might it changed over the years? Because you've been reporting on this for a long time. So mm -hmm. as an example, solar power, which you mentioned, you've been reporting on it since the 70s, that technology continues to be refined. It does. Now, you probably remember 1973 and the oil embargo when the OPEC countries in the Middle East just shut off cheap oil to the United States and Canada, and we just ran out of gas. And that was the first time that we got shocked that, gee, oil could be a limited resource. Let's look at alternatives. 
what I found when I was researching this book, because that's what I did, I, I want to say, where are all those alternatives? What happened over all these years? And when I interviewed scientists, I found that they were excited that not only has it been around a long time, it's getting better. So yeah, solar, we're familiar with the dark silicon panels that have been around forever, which are getting cheaper and cheaper by the minute. In some parts of the world, solar is now cheaper than coal, which is the cheapest fossil fuel. There's a new kind called perovskites. This is another kind of material that can be printed into really thin films, so thin you can actually see through them which is kind of counterintuitive. You think you want to catch sunlight, you don't want it to go through, you want it to stop, right? <laughs> like the conventional ones do. But these can be clear, which means you could put them over top of conventional solar panels to double up the power you're getting, but you could also put them on windows. Use them as window tinting. I'm in Vancouver right now, and all I see are these glass towers with so many windows facing south. Imagine if all of those were solar electric. They would cut down on the emissions from the building itself. They wouldn't completely power it, but they would certainly cut down on the amount of energy the building needs. And there was another crazy idea that's just theoretical at the moment, but it could be done. Perovskite paint, solar paint. Just paint your house wow. and it becomes solar. <laughs> what a great idea. That is a great <laughs> idea. One, one beyond that, paint the inside of your house. Paint the walls in your living room with perovskite paint so when you turn on the lights, <laughs> some of that light will be absorbed and turned back into electricity recycling light what a great idea <laughs> it just blew me away I thought, recycling light but this is the thing so in the future solar is going to become almost invisible it'll be incorporated into the architecture of buildings and parks and things it'll just be there and you won't even know it but it'll be generating electricity we don't just need those giant farms that seem to take up a lot of land it'll be everywhere so when we talk about electric cars and solar electricity, the battery technology, I think, has to change. Many of today's batteries used rarer metals. What's happening on that front? There's a lot of research going on in batteries because they are the big expense and the big obstacle with electric vehicles. You know, for so long, we just have those black bricks that you put in your car that start the engine. They don't hold enough to run the car itself. So lithium ion batteries took over and you're right. Lithium ion is somewhat of a rare metal and a lot of it comes from Chile and China. I was actually at a lithium mine in Chile at the Atacama Desert, which is the driest place on earth. And Chile's making a lot of money on lithium because they have a lot of it, but it also requires a lot of water. So you've got this facility that consumes huge amounts of water in the driest place on earth. And the local indigenous community is not very happy about that. Cobalt, which is also part of batteries, comes from the Republic of Congo, which has a history of child labor and abuses against humanity. There's a lot of research going into finding other materials. Lithium's still pretty good as a battery, but they're looking at other materials, polymers. There's even a battery under development that's made of iron. An iron battery, all it does is rust. <laughs> you get electricity out of it. <laughs> There's solid state batteries, they're called. They're very flat and lightweight so that you're not carrying as much weight around, so you don't need as many of them. There's a standard that they've set in the battery industry. It's called the million mile battery. This is a battery that you can use for a million miles. It won't go a million miles at one shot, but you can use it for a million miles. Cars don't last that long. So the idea is that when you burn your car out after, I don't know, two or 300,000 kilometers, the battery is still good. So you take it out and you put it in another new car. So the same battery can be used in four or five 
new cars. So you're not making as many batteries. We've been spoiled with gasoline that's so convenient, you can fill up in a couple of minutes. They're making batteries like that. But when you talk about the problems of what the resources that are consumed to make batteries, don't forget what it takes to make a liter of gasoline. You think about it. First, you got to go to northern Alberta and either drill oil out of the ground or get it out of the oil sands, use energy to heat the oil sands to get the oil out, then pump it through pipelines, hundreds or thousands of kilometers, sometimes to Houston, Texas, where more heat has to be added to it to distill it to get all the different products, the diesel, the jet fuel, the gasoline, all those things. Then that has to be shipped back up to Canada and distributed by truck and train to all of the gas stations around the country. That's a lot of energy that's taken just to make that liter of gas. So don't forget that. And at the same time, we're just blowing the products of that out into the atmosphere. We're just throwing it away. So we have to keep in mind what we're doing now. So any arguments against the alternatives, you got to compare that to doing nothing, to business as usual, because we're seeing it now. We're seeing the climate change in our face. Tesla has revolutionized the car business with the electric car. But think about mm-hmm. your comment there on the battery going from car to car. That, uh, think about walking into your local dealership five years from now and saying, I'd like that one and I have the batteries. How much? <laughs> Talk about trade-in value. And you're probably noticing more electric cars on the road and they're not all Teslas because all the car manufacturers are making electric cars now. Ford, a Mustang, their iconic muscle car, the gas-guzzling Mustang, 600-horsepower V8 is also an electric car now. That's the way it's going to come about. It's just going to eke its way into our way of being, just like our phones did. When you and I were kids, the phone was on the wall. And all it did was talk, and you had to stand beside it. Now it's in your pocket, and it can do so many other things. That didn't come from government mandates or because of the climate. It was a good product. It was a good idea, and people like electric cars. They're hot. They're fun to drive. They're quiet. They're clean, and they're really efficient. That's how I see the green revolution, as I'm calling it, coming about. It'll just appear. We're not going back to the caves or back to the trees. We don't have to break the economy. Just evolve our technology, evolve the way we move ourselves from place to place, the way we keep ourselves warm. Bob, everybody likes a great story. And I thought last year that story of William Shatner going into space and Blue Origin was just a great story. If Jeff Bezos calls you, are you going to think twice about it or are you going to get there as fast as you can? I'll be there in a heartbeat. (laughs) I'll be there in a heartbeat. Yeah, it's been my dream to get into space. I haven't quite made it yet, but maybe Jeff will take me up. I don't know. (laughs) What would you take with you? If they would let me, I would take a book that my mother gave me when I was a kid that I still have called The Planets. It was a golden library of knowledge, this hard book with all this artwork in it that talked about the planets and what they might be like. And back then they were all drawings because we hadn't been there. It showed me as a kid that the Earth is just one of a family of planets and all the others are really different. And I knew that as a kid. So to actually go up and see our planet from above, I I think I'd take that book with me. It'd be full circle. When Today in BC continues, Bob McDonald talks wind and nuclear energy alternatives. Get fast access to breaking news by signing up now to Black Press Media's free newsletters and stay informed with all the latest news delivered directly to your inbox. You'll have access on any device, so you never have to miss out again on the information you need to know. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. I'm Peter McCulley. 
Bob, another chapter of the book you talk about biofuels, wood pellets, ethanol, biodiesel, not necessarily all great ideas for all countries, but for some countries might work in some kind of a mix. Yes, biofuels are the most controversial. The idea is that you can turn organic matter, stuff that was alive, into fuels like ethanol or whatnot and use them like gasoline or even jet fuel. Then you grow back so that it's balanced, it's neutral. What you release into the atmosphere is absorbed again by the new plants. That's the concept. Canada is involved in the biofuel industry. We have wood pellets that we export to Europe that are burned in generating stations and sort of like coal, except they're wood pellets. It's waste material from the forestry industry. In Indonesia, they're cutting down rainforest to make palm plantations for palm oil, which is used in Europe as a fuel. In other parts of the world, they're using corn. The U.S. is using a lot of corn to make ethanol. In fact, when you fill up at some gas stations now, they'll say 10% alcohol. That mostly comes from corn. So that raises an issue. One, is it sustainable? But two, what about food? Are we turning food into fuels? So that debate is always going to be there, that we have to think about that very carefully, that we're not burning up what could be fed to people when we have hungry people in the world. It's an interesting concept. It has to be discussed very carefully to make sure that it's sustainable and viable. Your chapter on wind power was an eye-opener for me because I really wasn't aware of the size of these wind turbines that are being built around the world to generate electricity. Size matters in wind. (laughs) Size matters. Because the more area that you can cover, the more wind you get, the more power you get, the more energy you get. And because wind turbines subscribe a circle in the air when the blades are going around, you remember that old formula you had to learn as a kid, pi r squared? Yes. That R squared, the R is the radius of the circle, the distance from the center out to the edge. That's a blade on a wind turbine. So if you double the length of the blade, you square that to get the area. You square the area. You get four times the area. That's great. So the longer they can make these blades, the more energy they're going to get out of the wind. So that's why size matters. And in Europe now, in Denmark, they're building these turbines, the largest in the world, to the top of the blade when it's standing on the ground is 260 meters. That's two and a half times taller than the Peace Tower on our Parliament buildings in Ottawa. It's almost the height of the Eiffel Tower. They're gigantic. They're just huge. And the blades themselves have been designed by aircraft engineers. They're actual wings. They fly through the air. They're not just paddles. They actually fly and develop lift. So they're super efficient. And the largest one in the world at the time I wrote the book called the Halyard X is 12 megawatts. This thing is so big, so powerful, that one turn of the blade produces enough energy to keep a house going for two days. One turn of the blade. And the thing itself, just that one turbine, can run about 16,000 homes. So the idea is instead of having fields of wind turbines like we do now, is to have just a few of these large ones to do the same thing. So you cut down on the number of wind turbines that you need, and they're putting them offshore. Because people don't like looking at wind turbines. Oh, they're ugly. I don't like them. Put them offshore where the winds are steady anyway and stronger, and they can be as tall as you like. They're also easier to move the parts around because you're moving by ship rather than having these gigantic blades trying to get up to mountaintops kind of thing. So that's the future of wind, is size Size does matter. And they'll probably get even larger. It's unbelievable. Are they noisy? No, they're not. Because 
when you have something that large, it doesn't have to turn quickly. And in fact, they control the speed so that the tips of the blades don't go too fast because that's where you get the noise is if it goes too fast. But again, they're designed like airplanes. Some of them even have wing tips on them. And they're even taking a tip from nature. Some of them they're designing like owl's wings. Owls are totally silent flyers. They're predators. And they have these extra feathers on their wings that are on the leading edge that stick up a little bit like the teeth of a comb, but they're bent backwards. And they cause the air that's going over the top of the wing to create what's called a boundary layer. There's air that sticks to the wings so that the air passing over sees air, doesn't see feathers, it sees other air, which makes it really quiet. And the back of the wing, the trailing edge of an owl's wing is scalloped. And again, as the air leaves the wing, it makes it quieter. They've done this with windmill blades. They put little ridges along the leading edge and they put scallops on the back end and they're quiet. They don't make any noise. So there's technology to keep them quiet too and to make sure that they don't kill birds. Now, that's another criticism. Every form of energy has a problem. There's always some problem that you got to deal with. So they're doing things like make one of the blades black or color it so that you get a stroboscopic effect so birds can see them more easily. They put ultraviolet lights on them at night so they shine up so the birds can see when they're migrating. Or in Lethbridge, Alberta, there's a big wind farm there that I visited. During migration time, they raise the wind speed at which the turbines start up. Because birds tend not to fly in higher wind speeds. So they found that they could really cut down. But more birds are killed by tall buildings and cats than by wind turbines. <laughs> Far more by cats. <laughs> it's something that we can deal with. Growing up in Nova Scotia in the 70s, the government of the day was talking about establishing a tidal power project in the Bay of Fundy, which was big news. But it wasn't new because a professor... I think at Acadia University, it actually sketched it out on a napkin in 1915. A power generation project using the power of the tides came online, I think, in 2021. Mm -hmm. What has to happen for projects like that to be ramped up faster? That's a long time. That's 50 years. Yes. There was a project in Annapolis Royal that was a tidal dam that was built back in the 70s. And it ran for quite a long time. And the idea is that it's a dam across an estuary. So when the tide comes up, it fills the water behind the dam. Then you wait till the tide goes down and then you, it runs out and runs a turbine. Some whales actually managed to get through the dam where the turbines is and got caught behind. They were causing sedimentation. So it did work for a while, but there's a new approach to tidal power now. Rather than building these dams, they have floating tidal generators. So it's like a boat. I'm a sailor, and you anchor the boat, right, if you want to spend the night. You drop the anchor, and it sits. And then the tide would flow by the boat, but you've got a big propeller hanging off the back of it, and the propeller is driven by the tides, and it's a generator. So in Nova Scotia right now, they've got this big trimaran that's got, I think, six propellers on the back of it, and they're quite large, and they just drop them down into the water, and it just sits there generating electricity. And we know when the tides are going to be flowing four times a day to the minute for the next thousand years, we know because it's run by the moon. Scotland's doing the same thing in the Orkney Islands. They have this long thing like a yellow submarine with big wings sticking out the side. Same thing, they can drop them down. And in British Columbia, we've got a lot of tidal energy here. I'm in Victoria now. I sail around the Gulf Islands. And when I moved out here in 2011, I was on my sailboat and it was a beautiful day. I had all the sails up. I was going along thinking, hey, what's well, really a beautiful day. I looked at the shoreline and I was going backwards. 
because the tide was stronger than the wind. Because <laughs> when tide squeezes between islands, it speeds up. So we've got opportunities for tidal energy here on the West Coast as well. Your book also talks about the possibility of small nuclear as an option. What lessons mm-hmm. would we have learned from Canada's nuclear generating stations? They're called can-do reactors that use natural uranium, and they have an incredible safety record, believe it or not. In fact, the nuclear industry as a whole has the best safety record of all the energy production. That may seem hard to believe, but it's like the airline industry. Airlines are still the safest way to fly, but when there's an accident, it's big news. And there have been a few major accidents, Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, Fukushima. Chernobyl was awful. The, The whole reactor blew up. It was human error. It was not a nuclear explosion. It was a steam explosion because the water ran out. And that blew everything up into the atmosphere, and it was horrible. And a lot of people died from cancer from the radiation afterwards. That was awful. That type of reactor is no longer built. Three Mile Island, nobody died. The reactor did exactly what it was supposed to do. Again, human error. The reactor overheated. It melted down, but it was contained within the reactor vessel itself. Unfortunately, Just before that disaster happened, like a week before, a Hollywood movie came out called The China Syndrome, which talked about exactly the same thing. And they said, oh, no, this stuff is going to melt right through the earth to China. And it's going to be really awful and horrible. And And everybody remembered the movie, but Three Mile Island itself, nobody died from that. And no radiation was released. Fukushima, another terrible reaction. And there were three meltdowns there. But again, the reactors did what they were supposed to do. They contained it. So we need to have discussions about nuclear energy. But rather than going big, with these multi-billion dollar things that take millions per year to operate. The idea is to go small, similar to what's been inside nuclear aircraft carriers, submarines, Russian icebreakers that are small. So the core of the reactor is about the size of an office desk. And it, it just puts out a little bit of power, enough to run a small town. And you bury it underground. So you would ship it up to Fort Smith or something like that. Put it underground and it can run the entire town. And it's built in a factory. It's totally sealed up. You put it on the back of a truck and ship it up there, bury it for 30 years, get the energy out of it to generate electricity. 30 years later, you take it out and replace it with a new one. And it goes back to the factory. That's the idea. And these operate on different principles from the ones that we're familiar with. Some of them have liquid fuels, so they can't melt. And there's even one called a breeder reactor that will burn the used fuel that's now sitting on site of our nuclear reactors. We can recycle that stuff. So we need to have discussions about that. And the scientist that I interviewed for my book, he said the nuclear industry has done a terrible job explaining itself, how it works, how the technology works, what the risks really are. Yeah, nuclear waste is really nasty stuff, but we know where it all is. It's all under lock and key. It's protected. We're not throwing it into the atmosphere. So we need to have some discussions about that because there's a lot of opposition and we need to have intelligent conversations. The advantage to nuclear, it's emission-free and it's 24-7. So you don't have to worry about when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing. Nuclear is always there. So we have to have good discussions about it and rethink it. And Canada's looking into this. Bob, tell me your thoughts on hydrogen fuel, especially since we're in British Columbia, the home of the Ballard Mm -hmm. fuel cell where it was developed. Absolutely. Toyota has a fuel cell car called the Mira. I've seen them driving around and we have here in Vancouver and in Victoria, where I am, some prototype hydrogen fueling stations. So that's great. Hydrogen is a wonderful fuel. When you burn it, hydrogen combines with oxygen, you get H2O, water. That's it. No carbon. The problem is where do you get it from? 
right now we get most of our hydrogen from natural gas. As I was talking about earlier, they're hydrocarbons. So we can get them from fossil fuels, but we can also make them with our clean alternatives. If you turn wind power into electricity and use that to break down water to get hydrogen, you can do it that way. It's totally clean. And I think the way hydrogen is going to come in is first through buses and delivery vehicles where all the vehicles come back to the same depot. So you only need one fueling station because there are issues handling hydrogen. It's a gas. You can handle it like natural gas, but it's a small molecule. If you want to liquefy it, it's super, super cold. So it's difficult to do that. However, it's still a very convenient fuel. Airbus Industries is designing some airplanes that are going to run on hydrogen. So it's good to cut down on the aviation industry's contribution to climate change, which is considerable. So we're going to see that come about. There was a time when hydrogen and batteries were competing with each other. But thanks to Tesla and all the development on batteries, they're ahead right now. But you watch out. Hydrogen's going to come back. And the Canadian Ballard fuel cell is going to be part of that, not just in cars, but also on a large scale. Because Ballard now makes fuel cells that are the size of locomotives. So they can be power sources as well. You've been a science journalist and an author for more than 30 years now. I'm going to take a shot in the dark here and say that you're a science fiction fan as well. Oh, yes, absolutely. So what's (laughs) the favorite movie or book? My all-time favorite movie is 2001, A Space Odyssey, which was realistic. They had Arthur C. Clarke. That's his story. He was an engineer. His books also inspired me as a kid. I read one called Islands in the Sky, and it was about a kid who wins a prize to go up to the space station, which was under construction. And he got to go up there and float around and meet the construction crew. And I was so taken by that. Arthur Clarke had this sense of realism. He took what we have and say, well, let's just push it a little bit into the future. It's not science fantasy where you have monsters and aliens and all that stuff. Science fiction is this is possible. And 2001 A Space Odyssey did that. I mean, I love all of it, Star Trek, Star Wars. and all. But one of the things that, <laughs> that bothers me sometimes about things like Star Trek, whenever they beam down to a planet, it's always really nice weather. <laughs> it's always a nice day. We're over 5,000 planets now we found going around to other stars. And none of them are like the Earth. None of them. They're either too hot or too cold. Mars will kill you. It's, there's no oxygen there. It's all carbon dioxide, and it's very cold. Jupiter's made of poisonous gas. Venus will cook you. It's so hot. That's a lesson that, that I've learned in studying other worlds is just how special this one is. This is the only place we know where you can go outside and you don't have to wear a spacesuit. And this is it. We live in the Garden of Eden of all the planets. I'm sure there are other Earths out there, but they're going to be really far away, and we can't get to them. So this is it. The Earth has been through so much in the past. It's been hit by big rocks from space. It's had climate change. It's been hotter. It's been cold. It's been frozen. It's gone through all kinds of things. And life persists. But every time there's a big extinction event, we've had at least five of them, what comes back is different than what was there before. The dinosaurs aren't here. Now we are. We're in an extinction event right now that we're causing. And I believe, now that we know that, we can engineer our way through it. I'm optimistic. That's why I did the book. We've been spending so much time pointing at the problems. And that's serious. I'm not minimizing that. Let's think positively. Let's not make enemies out of the oil industry or the government. Let's not point fingers and shout at each other. Let's work together and say, okay, what are we going to do? How do we get this stuff underway? Because it's all there. There's no new invention needed to go green. 
We just need to get over the fears, the fears that it'll break the economy, the fears it's going to be too expensive, the fears that politicians will lose votes, the fears that industry will be put out of business. Let's get over the fear and just move ahead with it and evolve our technology. I really believe we can do that. We've been to the moon and back, for God's sakes. We're very clever. We're really smart. So let's evolve our technology and prevent another mass extinction event, which would be us. I'd like to thank Bob McDonald, author and science journalist, talking about his new book, The Future Is Now, Solving the Climate Crisis with Today's Technologies, for being with us on this edition of Today in BC. If you have suggestions or comments, send us a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, and Google Podcasts. Mm-hmm.